I know you have to go. Let me. Last thing is, can can we go to that meeting in July? No. Okay. Uh, okay. Thanks a lot for your time. Sure. Okay. Bye. I'm writing this to you in reverse. Someone better call a hearse. I can see it all from here, from just a few glimpses. Now that light bulb's gone off and it's pulling my wings and now the light bulb. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg and I'm Jacob Goldstein. Uh, today's Tuesday, August 24th. And that was me you heard at the top, getting shot down by a guy named Stephen Cicchetti, who, despite what you heard, is actually a really nice guy. Right. And we are going to be hearing from Stephen Cicchetti today because he figures heavily in today's podcast. We are going to be talking about a shadowy international network of financial elites who gather in secret meetings in a small town in Switzerland to decide the fate of the world's financial system. Jacob, that's as sexy as I could make the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision sound. How do you think I did? I think you made it sound sexy as hell, <laughs> Alex, and and I actually don't think you oversold it. I mean, Basel is where these key rules that govern the world's banks are getting hammered out right now. What goes on in Basel is arguably as important for global finance as anything that happens in the U.S. Congress, and still most people have never heard of it. Until now. Until just a minute from now. <laughs> okay. Because I got to give you the indicator. All right, let's have it. What is it? One year. It would take one year or 12 and a half months, if you want to be precise, to sell all of the existing homes that were on the market in the U.S. in July. Oh, that's bad, huh? It's bad, right? Because, you know, obviously this, this indicator is a function of supply and demand. There were a lot of houses for sale in the U.S. in July, but nobody, nobody was buying. Sales of existing homes actually hit their lowest level in more than a decade. So in a normal scenario, the supply of existing homes in the market would take about six months to sell. Twelve months, what we have today, is is double what's considered normal. That's that's bad. So this looks like a glut. And it suggests that house prices have to fall a lot further. It, it does. And, you know, if this was just one kind of outlier indicator, you'd say, well, it's a fluke. It's just one month. But the pattern for housing has really been pretty consistent across a bunch of different indicators. We saw the market bottom out in the first half of last year. We saw it climb at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. But then in the past few months, indicator after indicator has shown that the housing market is turning again. It's falling again. All right. Enough about housing. Let's move on to global banking, shall we? Let's go. All right. So the one thing that everybody agreed or seemed to agree about the financial crisis we just went through was that financial institutions did not have enough money set aside as a safety cushion. In finance speak, they say banks didn't have enough capital or banks had too much leverage. It is the same thing. They didn't have enough money in reserve to protect them in a downturn. So you think the Dodd-Frank bill, the sweeping financial overhaul designed to make sure that we won't have to go through the financial crisis again that Congress just passed, you would think that that would set clear, deliberate rules on bank leverage. But it doesn't. And in fact, the Obama administration actually pushed to leave those rules out of the bill. Uh, Timothy Geithner, in a letter to Congressman Keith Ellison, uh, wrote, quote, We do not believe that codifying a specific numerical leverage requirement in statute would be appropriate. And the reason, he says, is that coming up with an actual number, actually setting what the leverage requirements would be for banks, is best left to other regulatory agencies. And he mentions one by name. He writes that he'd like to leave it to the, quote, Basel Committee on Banking Supervision to develop an international agreement on the form, structure, and level of such a leverage ratio. So then the question is, 
what is this Basel committee, <laughs> right? And, yeah. and why is Geithner saying, let's put this committee in charge of, you know, what's arguably the most important piece of reforming the world's financial system? So I've been trying to answer this question for a while now. And, and the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, broadly, you can think of it as the supergroup of world banking regulators. So four times a year, the chief financial regulators from all over the world, central banks all over the world, they meet and they coordinate global banking regulation. And so who are these people? Like from the U.S., you, you, you can think people from the Fed, people from the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which regulates banks. That's Sheila Baer. Sheila Baer goes to Basel. So that's the basics. But finding out much more than that is very difficult, as you yourself found out, Jacob. Right. That, that clip at the top was me asking a senior guy affiliated with Basel, Steve Cicchetti, could we actually just go to one of these meetings just to watch? And his answer was very clear, right? No. No. <laughs> and, and so I figured, well, I'll do the next best thing. I'll call the regulators from the United States who go to these meetings, and I'll ask them what it's like. So I called around, the Fed, the FDIC. Both of them said no. They won't talk to us on the record about that. So then I tried to find former former regulators who had been to Basel who could tell me what it's like. And that's when I learned you should not do a story about Basel in August because everyone was on vacation. I finally did, though, track down some people who'd been to Basel and could talk about it. And the first thing I asked was, like, what is the room like where people meet? There's circular rooms because it's in a tower. No windows. This is Barbara Matthews. She's an international financial expert who runs a company called BCM. She talked to me while she was on vacation on the beach from her hotel room. And then I also talked to a guy named Doug Elliott, who's a scholar at Brookings Institution. He was just back from a vacation. There are no windows. This way, you have to remember, banking regulation is essentially boring. So you don't want windows that would distract you. Anything will distract you. So no windows, not much else to really focus on. And, uh, you know, you're there with other policy people and regulators and bureaucrats talking about some fairly uh, detailed technical issues. The subject matter, as you can imagine, is, is quite complex, uh, to put it mildly. This is Jerry Corrigan. He's currently a managing director at Goldman Sachs, but for many years he was the chairman of the New York Federal Reserve, and he chaired the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision. He talked to me while he was on vacation from his fishing lodge in the mountains. In my day, there were probably... 25 or 30 people at the table. I just printed out some random pages from from uh, from Basel to the final accord. And so, you know, like page um, page uh, 25, it says, for risk-weighting purposes, short-term assessments are deemed to be issue-specific. They can only be used to derive risk weights for claims arising from the rated facility. They cannot be general. And, you know, uh, you know 250 pages of, of that type of... Um, yeah, that type of language. And and at these meetings, were you were you picking up this type of language and saying and arguing yeah. about it? Well, we never argued. We discussed. Uh, <laughs> so, OK, Alex, let's just pause uh, from all these people who are on vacation and talking to you and just step back and look at what Basel is. Uh, Basel Committee has been around meeting in these oval windowless rooms since the late 1970s. And, you know, over the past several decades, banking has become more global. Today, most of us just small savers. We have our money in banks that operate internationally. So, you know, the Basel process has become more important as, as the financial system has become more global. Here's Doug Elliott again. It's basically where the financial bureaucrats around the world are coming together 
to decide what the safety margins are that banks have to hold. So if the banks in our system had had more capital when we went through the recent financial crisis, it wouldn't have been nearly as bad, and the panic wouldn't have spread as much because we would have known that banks had a fair amount of safety margin. Instead, they went in without that much of a margin, and then everything hit the fan, and it got a lot worse. People justifiably panicked. So, sure, okay, capital requirements are important. We, we can agree about that. But, but there's still this question of, of why regulate capital requirements in this way? Why leave this super important thing to some little-known group in windowless rooms in Switzerland? And so the idea here is that the world should have a single set of banking rules because otherwise global banks would just relocate to whatever country has the most lax rules. So Steve Cicchetti, the guy we heard at the top shooting you down, Jacob, he, he's an economist and he works closely with the Basel process. You have to think about regulation as an arms race. <laughs> I'm, you're laughing, but I'm serious. And the arms race is between the regulators and the supervisors on the one side and the banks uh, on the other side. And so every day, the banks wake up looking for a way around it, and the regulators and the supervisors look for a way to try and contain the next thing they do. Mm-hmm. And if you, write the, if you write the laws in too restrictive a way, then what you do is you, you tie one hand behind the backs of the regulators and the supervisors in that arms race that they're in. All right, so the two sides in this arms race, they each have weapons, and the weapons are made of paper and math. Here's one. This is the most advanced weapon from the industry side. It's a report from the IIF, the Institute of International Finance, saying that if the Basel rules currently under discussion are passed, the world economy will grow much more slowly. You know, it says basically if you make banks hold more money in reserve, they won't lend as much money out. People won't be able to buy as much stuff on credit. Businesses won't be able to borrow to start factories, to hire people, etc. So, Jacob, boom. What do you say to that? It's not about what I say, Alex. It's about <laughs> what Chiquetti and his people say. And you know, you may not be surprised to learn they have their own bomb. They say in their own report, you know what hurts economic growth? Great big financial crises like the <laughs> one we just had. So in the long term, if you make banks safer, we have fewer great big financial crises, that'll be good for the economy, it'll be good for jobs, it'll be good for all the rest. Right. Now, this all sounds very simple, making banks safer. But when you get into it, this arms race boils down to a lot of super technical details and decisions to make. So, for example, if a bank is making a riskier loan, then it should hold more capital in reserve than if it was making a safe loan. But how do you determine which loan is risky and which is safe? Right. And even if you figure that out, then how much more capital should a bank hold for a risky loan than for a safer loan? And while we're at it, what counts as capital? What counts as a safe way to hold capital in reserve? So, for example, do you have to hold capital in cash? Do you have to have a big pile of money sitting in a vault or in your account? Or is it okay to hold treasury bonds? And if it's okay to hold treasury bonds, is it okay to hold AAA-rated securities as capital? So, so as, as we start out with what sounds simple, and, and, it, and it very quickly gets complicated, we, we come up on this, this broader issue with regulation, right? On the one hand, you say the, the world is a complicated place. The world is a nuanced place. And, and regulations need to be nuanced and specific to reflect that. 
But on the other hand, as regulations get more complicated, it gets easier for banks to game the system. And we saw this quite a bit with the last round of Basel rules. So as we said, the Basel committee meets regularly. And every once in a while, they do a big overhaul of the rules. And so this last happened in the early part of the 2000s. And they came up with their final rules in 2004. They went into effect in different countries in 2005 and 2006. And they utterly failed to stop the financial crisis. And one theory is that, yeah, those complicated rules, that was a perfect opportunity for banks to game the system. It was a perfect opportunity for banks to take on more risk and hide it from regulators through these complicated rules. I ran this idea by Jerry Corrigan at Goldman Sachs. And remember, he's the one fishing in the mountains, and he was a regulator for many years as well. There is some truth to that. There clearly is some truth to that. Well, well, let me give you a, let me give you again a simple example. Although not much is simple here. The, the key to the Basel arithmetic, if I can use that term, is you have to come up with a measure of so-called risk-weighted assets. All right, so yeah, so well, actually, Jacob, this turned out to be not such a simple example. Surprise. <laughs> so let me, but, but very interesting. So I'm just going to summarize what he said. So basically, he was saying, for a bank, assets, remember, are loans. And some loans are riskier than others, but it's hard to judge often how risky. And so a lot of banks have their own internal risk models. They use these models to judge the risks, and then that helps them determine how much capital to hold against that risk. And the Basel rules permit this. So, so let's just be clear here. What, what Jerry Corrigan is, is telling us is that the Basel rules, these key regulations, let the banks themselves decide how risky their loans are and let the banks themselves say, this is how much of a safety cushion we need. But the regulators are supposed to check the models that the banks are using. Um, and so the theory is that banks are better at assessing their own risk, but that the regulators should check their models. But of course, remember, each bank is different, and each bank is using a slightly different model. So as Jerry Corrigan was saying, the regulators have to be very sophisticated. They have to understand each bank and its proprietary model. And then this has to be coordinated with regulators all across Asia, Europe, and the Americas. Well, you get the idea. Now, if you just kind of in your mind's eye think about the way that has to work, uh, across all major internationally active banking institutions. It's obviously pretty complicated. So the new round of Basel rules are supposed to be finalized this November of this year. And the the overall approach, trying to like measure risk and accurately assess it in a nuanced way, that hasn't really changed. But people I talked to did say that there's lots of things in the new rules that will make that will make banks safer. For example, the new rules will impose an overall leverage requirement that will make a minimum capital standard to apply to banks, no matter how safe they say their assets are. It will also create tighter rules about what counts as capital, what banks can say they're holding to keep them safe. Um, There are lots of small and large changes like that. Plainly will be more rigorous and more demanding than they have been in the past. And that's exactly what we need. And so you think it stops a future financial crisis like the one we had? Well, no, I would never say that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what are we talking about then? (laughs) Well, financial crises are the result of collective human behavior. Uh Uh, What we can do 
is to reduce the probability or the likelihood of these things occurring in the future. But let's not get ourselves into thinking that we have come up with uh, some magic silver bullet that will control collective human behavior. So, so Jacob, this is the problem I always have with doing stories about regulation: is that like it's it, the, the answer that you can ar- arrive at is always very frustrating. It's always about. It's never like a cut and dry. We have stopped the problem. We've solved the problem. It's always like, well, we've mitigated the risk of the problem occurring in the in some unforeseen future slightly more than perhaps we would have mitigated otherwise. Right, you know what sure. I mean? And I mean, it can even be less satisfying than that because it's like, well, we, you know, we're trying to balance stiffer regulation against economic growth, and we, you know, banks need to be able to lend money, but we don't want them to lend too much money if they don't have enough capital. I mean, you did make it nice and sexy up at the top of the podcast, but like, <laughs> once you start digging into this stuff, you can say, yes, it's super important, but you know, exactly what it means and exactly what the outcome will be always ends up being not so sexy, right? Because you are always operating. Basically, every answer lies on this one spectrum. If you wanted banks to be perfectly safe, you would never let them lend money in the first place. Right. <laughs> the way to not have financial crises <laughs> is to not have a financial system. So right? and given that banks are going to lend money, there's and that, some that's risk basically inherent. a good thing. Right? Yes. I mean, having a financial system means there is a possibility of another financial crisis. So you're just sort of on this spectrum. papers from the regulators and from the banks on our blog, npr.org slash money. And email us your fixes for the global financial system at planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Alex Bloomberg. I'm Jacob Goldstein. Thanks for listening.